Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. The real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, and we're glad you're here. If you're someone who wants to have a legendary, long-term, super successful professional career, you're going to love this episode. Today, a fascinating free-range conversation with one of the most respected legal business minds in the technology industry. Christopher's longtime friend, David Shellhase, is here. He's considered one of the greatest general counsels in Silicon Valley history. David was the GC at Salesforce for nine years, and he was the GC that took them public. He was the GC at Groupon, and most recently, the GC at Slack. Today, he's a legal Obi-Wan who is highly sought after for his sage wisdom. On this highly engaging episode, David and Christopher cover everything from the problems plaguing San Francisco and California to how lawyers can be true partners who help power the success of a legendary business, how entrepreneurs and CEOs can partner with their lawyers to power the success of a legendary business, how to deal with tough legal situations, how business leaders can best deal with regulators and lawmakers, and a lot more. Now, most CEOs have a tough time answering the most important question in business. Are we going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? And in tough times, the inability to answer this simple question can be devastating. According to research from my friends at Clary, the average company has 14.9% revenue leak, which is revenue that they earn but that falls through the cracks. In good times and in bad, every drop of revenue matters. Go to Clary.com and calculate your potential revenue leak. That's C-L-A-R-I dot com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Where do you live now? Uh, I'm in the city. So, oh, you are? Um, you and all the yeah, criminals and yeah. zombies. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm one of the one of the generals in the zombie army. I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. We, uh, so I let's see. We bought this house almost ten years ago. So that's a oh, long wow. time. And I, I, aside from my Groupon adventure, my my three years in Chicago, I've been in the city since 1993. So that's wow. 30 years. Holy shit, yeah. dude. You could write a book about the changes you've seen in San Francisco. I, yeah, it's it's true. What's it like now? Downtown is a ghost town. It is. You know, it is. Yeah, it is. It's funny. I um, I was just in London for a week and London is happening. Like London is, the energy is there. Everything is going on. People are running around and it's great. And downtown San Francisco, there is no energy. It's 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 actually really unfortunate. I think it's yep. um, I'm saddened by it, but it's it's a reality. And so um, it, you know, it's it's just very underpopulated. Like population feels like ten percent of what it was four years yep. ago. Wow. And it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like there's a rebound. You know, on right around the corner. You know, you can't write off a, a major city for 20 years, but but it doesn't feel like this time next year things are going to be great. Well, and it seems like they, you would know this way better than I would, but 
the policies that have made San Francisco a hellscape, people's thinking is not clear to me that they connect the policy decisions and the politicians, uh, the pro-criminal politicians that they have supported with creating the hellscape that is now San Francisco. It seems like they don't understand that, no, no, it's this way because you voted people in who made it this way. I think that, you know, it's like, there's a lot of complexity to how we got here, I think. And and you can oversimplify it quite a bit and blame it on the politicians. But I think there is a very large blame pie and each one of us can take a slice and, and, and and probably eat pretty well, honestly. Um, You know, every, I think almost everybody involved in sort of where we are today in San Francisco is, is well-intentioned. Right. I think the intentions are good. I think the the part of the problem has been there's a lack of of sort of knowledge of cause and effect. And and some of these problems that the city has are problems that the world has that are intractable and really, 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 really hard to address. You know, addiction like is a very, very hard thing to address. And and, you know, I know it firsthand. I've got a pretty close member of my family who has an opioid problem. And, you know, he struggles. He's been sober for a while now. He struggles every day is a struggle for him. And he's at every advantage in life. It's not like he's, you know, from a background that suggests that he's had trauma and so on. And he's kind of medicating himself that way. But every single day is a struggle. And, and, and he's got all the support in the world. And I can't imagine being a human being on the streets of San Francisco where there is the ready and steady availability of drugs and you have no, almost no support system or, or no support system trying to get clean. It's just like not like that's not going to happen for, for 99 out of a hundred people. And, and I don't know what the answer is, you know, like the world wants an easy solution, like, oh, if the National Guard just comes in and shuts down the tenderloin or ropes it off and no drugs get in, then in five days, everybody's going to be clean and that'll be the end of the problem. And it's not that simple. You know, I, I think it's I think politicians sometimes complexify it for sure. And some of the nonprofit groups, which, again, are, they're all well intentioned, but some of them complexify it as well. And they become institutions and bureaucracies of their own. But I like I, I want there to be an easy solution because I, because we're all you know bought into that and also like we're Americans you're not but we're, but we are we're wired. Hey, to I'm like an American want, now. You know. <laughs> oh, you are okay. That's great. Yeah, I, mean, I became an American no oh, fifteen years ago or something like that. Congratulations. Well, welcome to our little Thank tribe. You. Um, but you know, <laughs> I'm Americans proud to be an American. Are, you know. They want loud noises and fast cars and, and easy, simple solutions to problems. And sometimes that energy is like what drive that that energy has driven this country to like great success. But it's it makes it harder to to deal with situations that are and I keep using the word complex, which is another word for, I think, difficult. You know, it's yes. when you're dealing with people who are on the margins of society, who are hard to reach and who have chemical problems that's like a really tough thing to deal with. And I think most of San Francisco's problems are 
problems that the world has, we are just somewhat more tolerant of the people who have those problems. We have fair weather. Like the homeless problem in Chicago is not nearly as bad because guess what? If you're outside in Chicago four months a year, you no longer exist. And yeah, whereas in San Francisco, that's not the case. You know, the interesting thing to me about this topic is, uh, are you a scuba diver, David, by chance? I'm not. No. So there's a scuba diving uh, expression they teach you when you're learning to scuba dive, because as your dive master will teach you, scuba diving is a breathing sport. That's the phrase. Scuba is a breathing sport because it's all about how you breathe underwater. And with that said, there's a, there's a scuba expression that says you can't suck and blow at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And, and we suck and blow at the same time. And so on one hand, there's this, we want to be supportive and loving and caring and all that sort of stuff. And it, as it relates to opioids, in particular, the super, you know, if you think about fentanyl, we, we don't know whether we're sucking or blowing. So we've essentially decriminalized fentanyl. The average fentanyl dealer goes to jail for less than three years when convicted, if convicted. We had a fentanyl dealer right here in Santa Cruz get arrested about a month or two ago with enough fentanyl. Uh, this is a convicted criminal, was found with 15 firearms, all illegal because convicted, fem, uh, convicted felons can't have firearms. Massive amount of ammo, a massive amount of illegal money. And a whole bunch of fentanyl, meth, and a bunch of other stuff. The fentanyl alone was enough to kill a thousand people. The judge, uh, her name is Deanie Guy here in Santa Cruz, let him out with uh, $20,000. And so, you know, we have to get serious. We're either going to get serious about these crimes and make them illegal, or we have to make them legal. We, we can't be in this in-between zone. And, um, you know, I've spoken to local yeah. law enforcement. There's a, you know, so for example, in California, it's basically uh, impossible to convict anybody under 18 of anything of consequence. They don't go to jail, including murder, because we've decriminalized crime if you're under 18. Well, if you take that in concert with the poorest border, what local law enforcement has told me, our local chief of police, by way of example, is that now the... Uh, the drug gangs from down south uh, traffic children and they make them do all the work, including the killing and the muling of the drugs. Because they know that when a 16-year-old is caught with a massive amount of fentanyl, that literally nothing's going to happen to them. A 16-year-old who commits murder is going to do probably less than 10 years in jail. And so, um, yes, it's a complex problem. And we're not serious. We suck and blow at the same time. We either have to legalize all this stuff and, and put the infrastructure in place we have for cannabis, by way of example, or we have to criminalize it. But we're in this in-between zone, and the in-between zone is literally killing people. Yeah, I, we, we are definitely schizophrenic as a society and as a country about it. We don't, we don't have a coherent strategy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and a lot of that is a reaction to the overreaction in the 60s to drugs that today have been decriminalized at all but the federal level, right? And, and so people sort of don't want that. And, they, and I think we're all, and I shouldn't include you in this, but, but I would say that most people, I think, are sort of not 
not in favor of mass incarceration as a solution to society's ills. You absolutely have to incarcerate some people, but you got to be very careful when you do that. And you got to, you know, you got to figure out what happens when people come out of incarceration too, and provide them good jobs. And I'm involved in an effort to do that. And so that we can go deep on that if you'd like, but because I think that's another societal problem that we've got to tackle or issue that we've got to tackle that we're also a little bit schizophrenic on, but yeah, I mean, what, you know, what, what we lack is a holistic approach to this. And so law enforcement's hands are tied behind their back. I don't disagree with you there. You know, we as a society are, we want to have it, maybe sucking and blowing is the wrong metaphor. We want to have our cake and eat it too, in the sense that, you know, we want to be a permissive society. And San Francisco is, is at the bleeding edge of that for sure. At the same time, you know, we don't want some of the messes that come with, a very permissive society. And so, and, and San Francisco historically, I think has been like, has been a leader in, in a a thought leader in the nation in terms of, you know, some issues that people care about a lot. So for example, decriminalizing marijuana, gay marriage, things like that. Right. And so you, you kind of like, I think there's, there is an appropriately, an appropriate nervousness about, sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There's another horrible metaphor Um, because you don't want to, you don't want to be too restrictive. You want to allow people to be people and you want freedoms or San Francisco sure does. And so it's, it's really difficult like for, for that mentality to deal with a situation like what we've got in the tenderloin, for example really difficult. And I, I don't have solutions. If I had solutions, I'd run for office or I'd, you know, shout from the highest mountaintops. I'm kind of like almost everyone else in San Francisco who is sort of silently sitting in their home, hoping that someone else has a better idea and, or will deal with a problem that they think is messy, unsightly, unpleasant, et cetera. Yes. And the thing that uh, (laughs) some of us are trying to get done, um, is, uh, cause I'm part of a couple of different groups that are working on these problems is what you might think of as big carrots and big sticks, right? So in, in some ways we don't have enough support and we need, uh, we need that. So recidivism by way of example, here in Santa Cruz, our, uh, local sheriff's office has done an incredible job at helping to put together plans for, uh, inmates who are coming out of the County jail and going back into the world um, and uh, as a result of men, of those programs, recidivism is down here. So there's there's a way to do that by way of example. There's clearly a way to help people who are addicted, who need help. There's clearly, you know, a huge part of homelessness has to do with cost of healthcare in our country, right? So there's a way to deal with those things. So there are solutions and we don't have sticks in this country. This is the part that people don't understand. The average murderer in California serves 15 years in jail. The average rapist serves three. 40% of murders go unsolved. 80% of rapes go unsolved. So we don't take punishment seriously. There isn't punishment in the United States. There is not a cost. If somebody breaks into your house tonight in San Francisco with a weapon and attacks you, if they're a criminal a known criminal, they will most likely not go to jail for that crime. And this is the part most people don't understand. 
it's very, very hard to get arrested, never mind convicted in, in California for most things. And so crime has to be illegal. And it's it's not. And it's a big problem. And we've been decriminalizing crime for for decades. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a it's that's a nifty soundbite. Crime has to be illegal. And for sure it does. No, but it's not. I think, it, it sounds it sounds like a silly sound yeah. soundbite. But when you realize some of the stats that I just shared with you, and I give you many more if you wanted, what yeah, yeah. the only conclusion is we have decriminalized a whole bunch of crime. And we're paying the price for it. San Francisco's more more dangerous than much of Mexico. Uh, you know, I don't feel it. <laughs> you may be right, but I don't feel that. I don't, You're more you know, likely I don't to get killed in San Francisco than you are in Cabo San Lucas, for sure, statistically. Well, that's, you know. It's not even that, close. That, that could be. I am definitely not finger-tippy with any of the statistics around it, right? But I, I do look at it from sort of a historical perspective, which is, you know, I think some of what's happening today is a reaction, and every every action in society is usually a re, an overreaction to something that happened before, right? And so, you know, we have a history in this state and in this country of of over incarcerating people for petty offenses, sometimes adding right. penalties and enhancements to to sentences, and we have a long history of incarcerating people for. Uh, dealing or possessing a drug that is now legal in a lot of states and 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 disproportionately people of color and it's disproportionately people of color. And it's, and, and so, you know, so before we sort of recriminalize some of the behavior that you're talking about, which, which I agree, you know, at some point we need to do, we like, I deeply understand the overreaction, the other way of saying we don't want to, we, we don't want to over-incarcerate because we have a history of over-incarceration and the dial, unfortunately, it's not, it's not like a finely tuned dial that you can dial. It's like we, 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 it, 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 to me, it feels like sort of as a society, our foot is either always all the way on the accelerator or always all the way on the brake. And that's like a very difficult way to kind of run a civil society. Not like we've, yes. we've taken this conversation way up to a meta level, but I think, I think a lot of what you're seeing today is a, is an overreaction to things that happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago with the war on drugs, which I don't think were, was a good policy choice for us at the time. So, you know, and, and we're kind of stuck with some of those. Yes. And the interesting thing about that is there's some European countries that have gone the opposite, you know, um, Switzerland, uh, Portugal come to mind where heavy, heavy drugs are legal. You can, in Switzerland, you can go and shoot up at a government facility. Uh, and Portugal has taken a pretty radical approach to decriminalization of heavy drugs. And look, I don't know whether that's the right answer or not. I, I don't. What I do know is we can't continue to suck and blow. That's what I know. And I know that incarcerating users of these things is insane, which we have done historically. That, that's that been a tremendous amount of the incarceration is, is either low-level dealers and or users and people of color. And if you look at the data for crack convictions versus cocaine uh, convictions, which is exactly the same drug, it's just uh, taken differently. And one was more popular in the black community and one was more popular in the white community. Well, guess what? The people who took crack were the ones that were incarcerated in a way that the people who took cocaine were not. So there's lots of those kinds of problems for sure. Yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing is I, I think, David, that 
sort of this Republican Democrat thing fucks people. So, you know, on one hand, somebody could hear me and I have a pretty uh, strong opinion about that crime should be illegal and there should be a very serious penalty paid for serious crime. At the same time, you might hear that and go, oh, well, you know, this guy's some right wing asshole. At the same time, <laughs> I believe in gay marriage. Uh, I, I, what's happening right now to the trans community, I find absolutely terrifying. Um, and so it's not like you got to be all in on all of these positions. No. The fact that I think that murderers should go to jail forever and rapists should go to jail forever has nothing to do with support of gay marriage. And yet these things all get conflated in that, oh, you have this position or that position. I think I think America is like you're you're absolutely right in this. If, if the point you're making is that, you know, we we are basically down to two choices in this country and the diversity of opinions is not a prized thing by either political party, right? They want, they want their own adherence to toe a party line, which is strictly set by, I don't know who, by whoever the leader of the party is at the time. And if you're, if you're not, if you don't adhere to that orthodoxy, you're basically cast out from the party and you're kind of on your own. And I think that's a shame because it does feel as though like <laughs> newsflash, America is getting more polarized, right? Eh. You know, that is that is not news, but we are all living with the unfortunate consequences of it. And and it's and and you're right that, you know, sometimes. Well, you're right. You're right. We need we need more choices in the world and we need our politicians to be a little bit more agile and a little bit less doctrinaire, in my opinion. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. And we need more fucking thinking. You know, Roger Martin, yeah. uh, he, he, de he defines thinking in, in two ways. Uh, he, he calls it reflective and reflexive. And most people don't know how to think about thinking, and they don't know the difference between the two. And what most people call thinking is a reflex. And they don't actually think. I'll, I'll give you a simple example. Sure. I'm anti-abortion. I'm pro-life. I think, I think life begins at conception because best I can tell if a boy and a girl do that thing and conception happens nine months later, unless something weird happens, we're going to have a person. Now I say all that and a bunch of people connect a bunch of dots that I just didn't connect because the following is also true. I believe in a woman's right to choose. I don't, I don't, I don't think I have any right to tell anybody what the fuck to do. And I, I understand there are people that I love and respect deeply who say that abortion is murder. I understand that point of view. I'm not even sure I disagree with it. And what I know is any woman who doesn't want to have a child, forcing her to have one is an intergalactically bad idea and, in my opinion, is wrong. So I'm pro-life. I want there to be zero abortions. And I believe in a woman's right to choose. Well, you tell that to most people and their heads explode. Well, there's a there's another problem. You're <laughs> you're assuming that people listened long enough to hear the second part of what you said. And that's another problem in our society. Right. Which is which is, gee, you know, David just appeared on a podcast with some right wing nutball, you know, blah, 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 because I heard him say this when two seconds later he said something else which redeemed him in the eyes of some people. Right. And so. 
like the attention span and, and made some people who thought beings. what I said in the first part was great make hate me now. <laughs> made, that's, that's that's exactly right. And and so you know part of that I'm not, I'm not even sure we've gotten to whether it's a reflective or a reflexive thought. I think we we sadly you know you might have been lost after the first sentence by the vast right. majority of listeners because people don't have attention spans anymore, and that's uh, like. I'm not, I don't know historically whether people have had longer attention spans, but it sure feels as though attention spans are shorter. A lot of that is thanks to all of the apps that, and the, you know, and the television we watch and all of that. It turns out your, your dad was right. TV does rot your brain and apps (laughs) rot your brain even more probably. So, you know, so we're a little bit stuck there, I think. And, and we've got the people we've got. So I I don't know how to appeal. Like, I think I'm aging out of the the social discourse because, because you're right. (laughs) I'm able to sit still for more than 30 seconds. Now, I, I don't know what my limit is. Maybe it's 60 seconds. Maybe it's 90 seconds. <laughs> but it's really hard to get people just to listen. I think. Yeah, because we don't want to think. We what, what we want is something that validates the feeling. It's not even thinking the feeling that we already have, and so we don't. Absolutely, think. I you know, right? We've like, I'm I'm a great example of somebody who has like massive confirmation bias. You know, I tend to read the same media and I tend to click on the things we that I do. know are going to give me a little bit of endorphin, you know, because yeah, and I think we all do. And I know, I know myself well enough. I rarely challenge myself to read something or to watch something that I think is going to be counter to what I, I believe, Hmm. you know, it's funny. I, 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 I do more and more of that now than ever before, you know? So for example, uh, yeah. Uh, Alan Dershowitz just did an opinion piece in the wall street journal about the Trump indictments. And I saw the headline and I wasn't going to read it because I thought, I I think I know what he's going to say because I've been listening to him for a long time. So I don't need to read that. And then I thought, you know what? Maybe I do, but I'm curious. What does he have to say? Uh, And I thought I would probably disagree with him. Um, And I read it and it was incredibly thoughtful. And it wasn't what I thought he was going to say. Now, I can't tell you I agreed with everything he wrote, but I'm glad I read it. And I consume, I'll listen to an NPR podcast and I listen to Ben Shapiro, right? And that'll, that'll make you nuts, by the way. That'll give your head a real, Um, but I think it's for me personally, as we've gotten more and more bifurcated and we're not the United States of America, we're um, Bluica and Redica. Um, the more yeah. Bluica and Redica we become, the more I seek out things that I think I might not agree with. The other problem I have, David, is because I'm a radical independent, I don't agree with anybody. I, I disagree with most people and most people disagree with me. So there's no media source that makes me feel good anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess my confirmation bias is I'm, I'm pretty deeply cynical and often very paranoid and and. And yet, you know, every time I open the Wall Street Journal or some other medium, you know, the world does something that that makes it feel as though, I, no, 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 I haven't been cynical enough and I'm not paranoid enough, you know. And so, so it, like, I, I, I get these weird feelings because I, I do feel like I'm very cynical and paranoid. And yet, 
bad things continue to happen and things <laughs> should make me paranoid and cynical hit me in the face every day, even though I feel like I'm prepared for it. So it's, uh, it's well, it's this goes back to the legalization of marijuana because the only response to any of this stuff is a, uh, is a whiskey and a toke, I think. <laughs> I'm sticking with whiskey, you know, and maybe I'm too old to change my ways. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, the, the whiskey. Well, listen, still if you want to come down here, I'll, I'll get you stoned and we'll have a great time for, for, yeah, Santa Cruz is absolutely the right venue for that historically. And, well, when and you come, when you come across the County line, there's a, a gal that stands there and she hands you, uh, uh three pre-rolls and two gummies. That's fantastic. That's your tax dollars at work. <laughs> Love it. So um, you've had one of the most legendary careers, uh, I think, a fascinating career. And for me, who, who knew you fairly early on in your career, to see kind of everything that you've done since, it just looks like you've had an amazing career. Does it feel that way to you? There are days when it does and days when it doesn't. Th first of all, thank you for saying that. I, no, I really, I, I'm really it. impressed. And and I mean, I remember when I met you, you were you were uh, you know a high potential, massive up and comer who'd been anointed by one of the Obi Wan's of the times as <laughs> as the next generation of Jedi. And here you here you are now, Obi Wan. Uh, 25 plus years later. I mean, I, I saw you do it and, and it seems like you've had a fascinating professional life. Thank you. I, I feel as though I have, but then there are days when I feel as though most of what I've done is shown up, you know, and I think I, who, who, who was it who said 90% of life is showing up? Who was that? Do you know? Eddie, uh, uh, was, um, uh, uh, Woody Allen. Was it, it's Woody, was Allen. it Woody Allen? Okay. Almost I'm possibly. quoting Woody Allen. That's <laughs> That's that's a good look. Which you're not allowed um, to do anymore for <laughs> obvious reasons, but right. whatever. Yeah, I, <laughs> that makes you a bad person. I know, I know, I realize that. I I do like there are times when I think, wow, I have there like a, a bunch of extraordinary events have unfolded in front of me, and sometimes I've been a participant, and sometimes I've been an observer for sure. And so, so thank is thank you for saying that. But most days, I really do feel as though what I did was show up. And here's a horrible phrase that I hate using, but people use it all the time now. I showed up and I put in the work, <laughs> which I just I hate that phrase. But I showed up and I did I did my best. There's a there's a better phrase, right? I showed up and I did my best, and I tried to I tried to think a little bit ahead of where the world was. Um, but you know, but here's, here's one thing just like reflecting on things. And I often tell this to people who are kind of careerist. And I think I've been careerist in my life. In other words, I'm focused on my career. I've thought about it and I, and, and, you know, and, and a lot of the things I do are, are in the service of my career, so to speak. But, but often what I, what I tell people, and this has been very true of my career is, you know, Throughout the course of a long career, it's it's like there's a portfolio effect. In other words, your stock may not rise at you know at the beginning or at the end, and it, there are going to be ups and downs all the time. But but usually it evens out 
over the course of a long career. So if you're in it for a long time, you'll get your share of victories as well as your share of defeats. And, and I can make that, you know, more tactile in any way you want, but I, but I would, I'll go down one level of abstraction, which is to say in any given moment in your career, you're going to be, you know, given credit sometimes for accomplishments that are not yours. You're going to be given demerits or blamed for problems that you didn't create and didn't exacerbate. You know, sometimes other people will get the credit that you deserve and you kind of have to work through that psychologically. But over time, it does like justice is not served at any given moment of a career, but justice is served over the long haul. Speech over. (laughs) No, I love it. I want to hear your speeches. Yeah, no, I I tell that to people who are, you know, who are sort of um, lamenting their current circumstances or lamenting that they weren't given enough credit for for some accomplishment or something, you know, and I and I think back in my own career and there have been times when like rarely do you get all the credit you deserve at the time you accomplish something. Sometimes it's in retrospect, sometimes it's in prospect, but but more often than not especially when you're a lawyer, for example, a lot of what you do never really surfaces. And, and many of the things that you do, you can't talk about or can only really be appreciated by other lawyers. So, you know, the practitioner of the craft, just like the tailor can appreciate the fine stitching on your, on your blazer, but you might not be able to because it's kind of invisible right. to the, to, you know, to the lay person, so to speak. So, so you kind of have to have a longer term perspective on things. And I think that's hard. You know, when I was when I was younger, it was it was hard for me to have that perspective. But I try to tell tell folks today that's like a good way to think about things. You know, if your current circumstances yes. are not exactly what you want. Now, there's a couple things that I learned uh, learned from you and from Ray Ocampo. Uh, is Ray, where is Ray these days, by the way? Do you know? So I think Ray is fully retired. He is. The last time I saw him, boy, I had lunch with him about six years ago. And I feel bad about that, that I haven't kept up with him. He was affiliated with the Berkeley Law School Center for Law and Technology. And he may still be affiliated there. In fact, I should go offline and just and just see if they've got a bio of him. I'm going to Google there. while you're talking but, and see if I can find him. Yeah, why, why ever not? But... Um, but Ray, so, so, so that was, that was kind of the last time he poked his head up in my world. And I feel bad about that because I, I, Ray is a terrific guy and was a fantastic mentor for me. So I Google him and the first thing that comes up is something called the Asia Pacific fund.org board. And, uh, it, so it looks like he's on the board of that. And then it looks that like, sounds like, oh, wow. He's got a Wikipedia page, which actually makes sense. Um, and he's on the he's on the uh, official USA dot uh, com, which I think is the Olympic website. So yeah, we could probably still find him. I would love to find him. I I, I haven't talked to him in t- twenty years. Um, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I, looks, I feel uh, bad. His photo looks great. He looks incredible. He looks as good as he's ever looked. If he still looks like this photo, uh, he's a good-looking guy. He's gonna he's gonna age well. But here's what he taught me, and then and then you taught me as well, which is 
And you might have even said these words. Does this sound like something you taught me? That there's two kinds of lawyers in business. There's the GC who tells you what you can and can't do. And then there's the GC who understands the business, understands what we want to accomplish and figures out a way to do it in a way that protects the company. That sounds like And me. they don't think their job is to... If it wasn't that, it was something like it's, that. It's, like you're not going to let us do anything illegal. No, your job is to keep us out of jail and to and to keep us on the right side of the law, of course. Yeah. But ever since you, <laughs> I have fought with lawyers my entire fucking career because virtually all of them in the business world, in my experience, think it's their job to tell us what we can and can't do. And I tell them that you taught me that. So did you teach you that? <laughs> I hope I did. I, th I think I, first of all, that definitely sounds like something Ray would say. And it definitely sounds like something I would say after hearing Ray say it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, and maybe taking credit for it. Speaking of not getting appropriate credit, I probably should have footnoted Ray when I said that to you, but you know what? I think justice has been served over the long course of his career. So he probably is okay. Ceding some amount of credit to me. Um, you're right. <laughs> that there are two kinds of lawyers. I think I think there are more in the latter camp than you think. You know, some and 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 it's and sometimes it's the way you ask the question too. You know, it's like it's like a lot of life. You know, I I think I think so much of life is your attitude. You know, it's it's how you approach a person or a problem, and oftentimes if you approach with the right attitude even though the person may not be disposed to doing the thing you want them to do or giving you what you want, you have a far, far better shot at it than if you come at them with, you know, with the wrong attitude or with a negative feeling. That's, that's the uplifting thought for the day. <laughs> that's, that's the Garfield yeah. cartoon for the day. <laughs> the, the other thing that I remember learning from you and from Ray is that the GC, the law, contracts, et cetera, are really strategic in business when used as such. And you taught me that you can fight with unconventional weapons. And so to think in nonlinear or sort of really uh, unique in different ways. And so um, I've always appreciated that, David. It has helped my thinking. Can I tell you a quick little story about this? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So when I became CMO of this company called Mercury, my last real job, I'm, I don't know, six weeks in or something like that. And I'm going through the budget and I see there's this quarterly expense for legal fees. And it seems really high. And I'm like, what is this? So I go and, f I go and find out. I, here's what I discover. So the company's name is Mercury Interactive. Right. And there's a company called FTD Florists. Mm. And FTD Florists, their logo is the Mercury Running Man. Absolutely. And at the time, this was the early 2000s, we were in a nonstop trademark battle with them because <laughs> they had created a piece of software called Mercury something that was their platform for floral shops to use to buy flowers from them. And so they would go to Brazil and they would they would uh, trademark the name Mercury for software and we would trademark the name Mercury for software and we would spend all this money. And this was going on for fucking years and years. 
It's like, so I asked the GC, who is a woman who ended up going to jail, by the way, but that's a whole other story. um, What's this about? And she explains this to me. And she says, it's been going on for years. I said, well, this seems stupid. And here's the point with questions. I looked her straight in the eye and I said, Susan, has an executive from our company ever called an executive from their company to talk about this? And she said, not to the best of my knowledge. So I literally went to their website. I found their CMO and I called him. I was in fucking Paris. I I remembered this like it was yesterday. And I, I left him a voicemail back in the day when you did that. And he called me right back. And I said to him, hey, listen, I'm the new CMO. I've been here for about six weeks. I see all this dumb expense. And I find out we're, all, we're fighting with you legally all around the world all the time. And I assume you have a similar expense in your budget. I'd love to talk to you about this because it seems dumb to me. He and I have a conversation. One conversation. And I think it was a five-page document that came out of that one conversation. And we gave up the right to ever use the word mercury as it relates to floral software. And they gave up the right to ever use the word mercury as it relates to enterprise software. And it was done. And it was a real David Shellhase moment for me because I was a very, very young executive when I met you. I didn't know to think that way. And you and Ray taught me business mind first, legal second. What's the business objective and what's the clearest path to get there? And in this case, you had lawyers fighting lawyers because that's what fucking lawyers supposedly do. And nobody ever asked the question, have we ever even called them? That's a great story. And, it, and, and, and you're, you're right to and be you, out. But you taught me that. The reason <laughs> I share this story is you taught me that. That's so interesting. I, you know, I, <laughs> I remember having a bunch of conversations with you, which we won't go into, but that, that story is sort of a classic. You both gave each other the sleeves off your vest, right? You didn't care about floral software and they didn't care about enterprise software. And that, that should have been identified the minute the dispute started. Right. And, and it's too bad. You know, it's too bad because because you probably spent a lot of money and a lot of time and anxiety, your companies over that. And, and but you're right. You know, those kinds of solutions are not always obvious. They're not always obvious. They're not always obvious to lawyers and they're not always obvious to business people either. And you do have to kind of come at things from a from a different angle. And it's like a complete cliche to say, you know, that's sort of a win win solution. That's like a horrible, you know, stupid cliche. But it is, you know, and 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 part of that goes back to what I said earlier, which is a lot of it is your attitude. And if your attitude is this is dumb and we should not be fighting over this and I'm going to call my counterpart and just have a little chat with him. That's fantastic. Right. And and he was open to it probably because you were open to it. And, you- and I didn't have a lawyer on the phone. Right. 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 I also knew because you taught me this. If I have a lawyer on that call, he's got to have his lawyer on that call. And stupid is likely going to continue. Right. That's right. <laughs> Lawyers are very important uh, and, and, and so, useful people, but you got to but you got to use them in the right way. You know. OK, so this is the thing I've been waiting 25 years to talk to you about. <laughs> OK. If I'm a bit. No, really, really. It's it's so fun. This is one of the joys of having a long career 
and 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 having relationships. I mean, you and I haven't kept in close touch, but I've always felt a connection to you. And I've always felt like I could pick up the phone and call you. And I have. And you've always given me great advice. So sometimes I didn't like the advice. but And so my question, David, is how should business leaders think about the GC function and the law in a strategic way, maybe not just a defensive or a protectionist kind of way? Well, I, I guess, you know, I've probably given a lot of thought to that or variations of that question throughout my career. Um, I think the most important thing or the most important way to think about it for a CEO is your lawyer is there to help you in times of trouble, for sure. And so you want somebody who will be in the trenches with you, but you want somebody who understands your vision and shares your values, you know? And I think that that, like that combination, it's, it's hard. It's like, there's, there's some chemistry that's involved, right? Some human emotion and chemistry, because you can get the smartest, sharpest lawyer married to the smartest, sharpest CEO, and the chemistry might not be there. They may not share the same vision for the company, for the employees. They may not have the same values around the way they operate or kind of what they think is important in the world. And those mismatches are usually what cause the friction. There are thousands of very competent lawyers out there, right? Very competent in-house lawyers who can be general counsels. It's just finding that match and finding the right sort of practical business mind is more difficult, I think. And the match is hard, right? Because especially, and, and we can go as deep on this as you want, but especially when it comes to like a founder CEO, you know, those people yeah. tend to fall into some psychological categories that make them more difficult to work with. <laughs> Right. <laughs> really? I haven't yeah. noticed that in my career. I know. <laughs> you know, I don't think it would shock the world to to learn that most CEO founders are some variation of productive narcissists. Right. And they have to be because, by God, they're making something out right. of nothing. Right. You know, you've got to you've got to really be self-confident and love yourself and love what you create, because the whole world is going to tell you, hey, like you're going to fail. Right. And so, and you, but at the same time, you've got to be highly productive because if you're just a narcissist, you you are going to fail. You're going to produce something that customers don't want to buy. Right. But so, so this highly productive narcissist personality that I think most successful founders and CEOs share is like you, that is not necessarily an easy fit with a highly competent lawyer. You know, you are a variation of a productive narcissist, right? You've created something out of nothing, which is a philosophy of marketing and a philosophy of sort of going to market. And you've got to have high confidence in yourself and your and your partners, your co-conspirators, and you've got to be highly productive because you've got to get that thing out there in the world, right? And so you're a variation yes. of that. And, and so... You, 
you, like I, I hope there's some self-identification for you, but it's but but wor- but working with those kinds of people can be challenging, especially for very for for lawyers who've been taught to thought to think in a linear way and who are kind of by the yes. book. And most lawyers are rule followers, right? They they grew up following the rules, and most, that's why they're lawyers, right? That's exactly right. And most CEO founders are not rule followers. They're people who don't think that way. They think different, <laughs> you know, they follow their different because we that's never met a rule we liked. Is that's it, right. Because, because as a matter of fact, the worst thing you can do to us is tell us we have to do it this way. Precisely. And so, and, and look, I don't want you to share anything that is inappropriate, but uh, I was just checking your, your LinkedIn. It, you were GC of Salesforce for almost nine years. Is that, is that, right. am I reading that right? Yeah, you're reading it correctly. And and Mark Benioff uh, is a hero of mine, legendary entrepreneur, category designer. Totally. Gets credit and deserves credit for the SaaS business model and the cloud and many other things. Incredible philanthropist. And look, I don't know, Mark, you do. I can imagine, Mark, not always easy. No, no, but... but Not, not interested in, in, in listening to the rules all the time, probably, right? <laughs> no, he's not. But he's but he's like one of the most productive humans on the planet. <laughs> right. And 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 you can't always listen to the rules if you want to be productive. You have to listen to them sometimes for sure. And he's very canny about that. You know, he knows he knows where the where the lines are and he knows when to listen to the people who are telling him what the rules are for sure. In fact, his grandfather was a lawyer. Um, a plaintiff's lawyer, as a matter of fact. And so he grew up in a world where, you know, the law and lawyers were valued for sure. But he is, you know, probably the greatest marketing CEO, certainly in the software industry. And I don't want to say of all time because I'm not an expert in that in that field. But, you know, but but you're right. He like he didn't invent SaaS. He's in the front of the Hall of Fame. I mean, he created one of the biggest categories in the history of business. And one of the most valuable companies in the history of business. And he's still CEO of the place. And Salesforce is got to be pushing close to 30 now, I would imagine, right? Uh, he founded it in 1999. So it's 20. So, so this year is the 25th yeah, okay. anniversary of Salesforce. So, okay. It, yeah. So yeah, there you he, go. You know, he um, did not invent. He's in, he's in the front of the hall Absolutely. of fame. He did not invent the cloud and he did not certainly didn't invent CRM as you and I both well know. But but he made them or SaaS right, or, or any, any of, that. of that. But but he evangelized it better than anyone ever has and created that category. Absolutely. Well, and this uh, this is a, as a side note. People conflate with being first to ship a product or a technology with being a category designer. And we've seen this lately with Apple. I've had a lot of fun with people uh, about Apple recently with their Vision uh, Pro announcement. And it turns out spatial computing, which is the category that they said the thing is, has been around for 20 years. And so people go, well, Apple's not creating a spatial computing category. It's been around for 20 years. <laughs> Our response to that is, some people ship products and build technologies and $3 trillion value companies design categories. And just because you're first to ship a new product or category of product doesn't mean 
you created a new market. <laughs> and okay. so did Mark create those things? No. Is he responsible for the success of those things? In large part, he is. And that's why he owns a Hawaiian island. Yeah. No, that, that's right. He technically doesn't own the island. Larry Ellison owns the island. But I get I get your point. I thought, didn't, <laughs> didn't he buy an adjacent one? I thought he bought something off of Lanai just to be... Oh, maybe, I'm, maybe, maybe I've lost. I don't know. I've lost it, it might be a bunch of whiskeys ago, but, but, you know, listen, Benioff, uh, we don't have to pass a hat for Benioff is the point, right? No. And, and, and he's, and so he, how do you, as a GC, David, I mean, you think about a larger than life character how, like that for you to be the lawyer, which a lot of people would view as sort of the person reigning a, a guy like that in, I know that's not what you did. And so how, from the GC seat, do you partner with, in this case, one of the greatest entrepreneurs of the modern era and a guy who's known for not listening to a lot of the rules because you wouldn't have done the things that he did if you listened to the rules. But at the same time, he's also not known for somebody who breaks laws or does anything inappropriate. You might not like some of the things he does, but to the best of my knowledge, nobody's ever accused him of being a criminal or doing horrible, illegal things, to the best of my knowledge. No, no, of course not. Of course not. Because he's he's a rational business person at the end of the day, and that rationality is kind of where the lawyer lives, right? And so if you are presenting the right business-oriented arguments and thinking things logically through and enabling him to do what he wants to do, sometimes suggesting different ways to accomplish it, then you're having the right relationship, right? And so, and, and you know, and, and I, like... My experience at Salesforce was I'm going to do my best no matter what. Sometimes I'm going to fail to convince him to come around to my position. Sometimes I'm going to succeed, but I'm going to show up every single day because I believe in the larger purpose and the thing that we're doing. And I want to be part of that. And, you know, no CEO that I've worked for has sort of crossed the line, so to speak, because I think most of them have pretty good instincts and will listen to rational arguments and lawyers and accountants and business people at the end of the day, right? Because, because they want their kind of capitalist enterprise to succeed. And if they're at all rational, they know that they can't cross that line, right? But so I don't, like, I, I don't think there's a magical formula that I've got, and I don't think there are you know, magic beans that you can give out to other lawyers or other people dealing with founder CEOs. I think you just have to kind of meet them where they live and do your best every single day to be there. And part of it is convincing them that you have their best interests and the company's best interests at heart. Right. And I think that's that's like a very important thing to do. And that that can take a while. Sometimes trust is not easy to establish and it's easy to lose. There's another cliche. But once you've got some of that trust that 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 your executive, the executives who you work with believe that you are working for the for the best interests of the company, then I think you get licensed to to be a little bit more prescriptive in the advice you give. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Now, I'm also curious, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, dealing with governments and acquisitions and the like. And yeah. uh, if you take Microsoft Act Activision, in my opinion, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm certainly no member of government, but whether it's the U.S. government or any other governments who are uh, potentially going to derail this thing, it seems insane to me. 
it seems completely insane. It, 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 a government agency trying to stop that acquisition, I could, I could argue for many hours as to why that's a dumb thing to do. So my question is, some of these big acquisitions are really tough to get through regulators. Mm-hmm. And you've been in the middle of a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you're, ironically, the GC of Slack, who's now getting acquired by Salesforce, where you were the GC 10 minutes ago or a couple of years ago, as the case right. may be. And that was a deal that required approval, as an example. And you've been involved with many other many others. H- how do we think about sort of navigating, not just U.S., but, it, uh, you know, one European country can derail a, a major acquisition, and these are very complex things. And so if I'm Microsoft trying to acquire Activision or I'm Salesforce trying to acquire Slack and I have to stick handle with these um, law- lawmakers, uh, sort of, can you take me behind the scenes of some of that stuff? Sure. Um, I think, you know, first of all, you have to kind of approach it with, with, not a beginner's mind, I don't think, but you definitely have to be open to the notion that the antitrust rules exist for a reason, right? And there's and there's history behind almost every law, right, that exists in the world. And you know, like take the securities laws, for example, right? The prime securities, the primary securities laws in this country were written in 1933 and 1934. In fact, they're called the 33 Act and the 34 Act. And then there was an update in 40, and it's called the 40 Act, shockingly. Um, and so they go back a long ways. They go back 90 years now. Um, antitrust laws are even older in this country, right? And so you kind of have to understand the historical context to kind of get to where we are today. And and a lot of what has happened in the world has followed the U.S. model or the, it, or the world has looked at the U.S. model and decided, okay, we need some something that resembles that, but we'll, we'll do it in a different way or a different process. But, we're, but, but by and large, the suspicion in the world has been that large is under a spotlight and small is better than large, right? And so you kind of have to start from that proposition and then work your way backwards. And it's easy, like the easiest thing is in hindsight to say, oh, the government should have stopped XYZ merger or the government should have let those two companies merge, right? That's the easiest thing to have hindsight on these things. Having foresight is like, the government doesn't have much foresight, but the world doesn't have much foresight. And so it's so it's really difficult to figure out whether competition is going to be substantially reduced, which is, you know, writ large, that's the standard everywhere, right? Is competition going to be substantially reduced? There are nuances in different regulatory schemes and whatnot, but that's the standard, basically. It's really hard for anyone to figure that out looking forward. You know, because if you had a crystal ball, you you might be in a different business, and even the companies involved don't necessarily have the crystal ball. So I so I think like this is not this should not be read as an apology for you know regulatory behavior, but it's an explanation for why they behave the way they do sometimes, and you have to sort of carefully listen to what they're saying about deals and about markets because they're focused on markets they're focused on kind of the larger markets and and if a deal plops into their onto their plate they put it in the context of the larger market as they see it 
And so that's like, okay, that's a, that's a very long way to say, to give you a lot of context. I do think that, you know, what I think what all of us would love to see practitioners, companies, and maybe even the regulators themselves. I don't know. I'm not inside their heads. But I think what what everyone would like to see is a better set of tools to predict the consequences of behavior, of mergers and that sort of thing. And it feels like, you know, I'm not sure ChatGPT is the right answer here, but at some point we will have a better set of tools. You know, I, I once fantasized that shouldn't there be a list that the, D, that the Department of Justice has that says, okay, these companies can't merge with these companies. So there's an A list and a B list. And, and we'll publish that A list and B list so that everybody will know and they won't go to the trouble of trying to combine. right? And, and that would be like a much simpler <laughs> world we could all live in. I'm not sure that fantasy of mine is ever going to come to pass. But, <laughs> but, but we can certainly get better, like everyone can get better about defining markets and figuring out what the near-term effects on competition of a merger are, or will be, I should say. Yes. Okay. That was a lot of that. There's a big word salad for you. Are you full yet? <laughs> no, no, but that's, listen, you're a big brain person and big brain people say big word salad shit. Now on this specific, this is another one I've been uh, uh, really uh, wanting to ask you. So, and by way of context, I remember when Zuckerberg was testifying one of his times in Congress and Senator Orrin Hatch, uh, you probably remember this, demonstrated his radical um, ignorance in front of Zuckerberg by asking (laughs) Zuckerberg, well, if your product's free, how do you make money? And he looked at him straight in the eye and said, Senator, we sell ads. That was the whole purpose of him being there, was to talk about privacy and how they mine our privacy to sell us ads. And the senator, A, didn't know what the fuck he was there for, and B, didn't even know. So these, in some cases, these are fucking people who have their, I'm going to use these words on purpose, secretaries print out emails that they call memos. Okay, so with that said, oh, and I listen to these people, I do. And, you know, I I heard Amy Klobuchar talking about the tech industry recently, and it was terrifying because it was very clear. You know, it's like if you asked me about brain surgery within the first two sentences, you would know that I don't know anything about brain surgery. (laughs) Well, so let's think about what's going on right now. Sam Altman was recently in Washington and he is taking a very interesting strategy, which I want to get your comment on, which is asking the government to regulate AI which historically has seemed to be an unusual position for entrepreneurs to take. And there's a lot of discussion about how AI is going to destroy the world and all this sort of stuff and all the, uh, all the uh, movies coming true. And so we're now in a situation where leaders in the AI world are asking lawmakers to regulate the future of our industry. Um, and you and I both know that there are many of those lawmakers who don't understand this in even the most basic of ways. And so I agree there needs to be protections. I agree AI could be very dangerous. Uh, I'm not a Luddite, far from it. But it's something we have to pay attention to. However, the lawmakers, some of them are morons. And so 
how how do how do we make sure that lawmakers are doing what we want them to do as a society um when in point of fact a lot of them don't even understand the technology industry never mind what ai is so put a pin in that for one second i'm glad you drew that I'll, I'll i'll answer that question but in a second i'm glad you drew the distinction between or at least i'm glad you identified lawmakers as sort of the the people that you are <laughs> accusing of being morons the regulators which is what we were just talking about the antitrust regulators for example are very smart. Who are different than lawmakers. They are very different than lawmakers. Oh, they are. And they are very smart So you people. think the regulators are smart people? I do. I do. I think they understand their jobs. That's great to hear. I think they understand markets. I think they understand the companies that are in those markets. You know, everyone that I've been dealing with over the past 10, 20 years at, let's say, the Department of Justice or the FTC or the European authorities, they're pretty dialed in. You know, I, th- I think you're I think you'd be heartened by their knowledge because they are very knowledgeable, very smart. People. I'm stoked to hear that. I didn't know this. No, it's it's true. Like the you know, they may they may sometimes be more partisan than you, than you want one way or the other. But but they are definitely they definitely understand the markets that they are regulating. And, and I believe they understand the technology that they're regulating too, pretty deeply. So. Um, so, OK. Now, wow, that's great news. That's fucking great news. We got real professionals in these organizations who are good public servants who know what they're doing and are trying to do a good job. That's what I hear you do. saying. We do. And 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 they they have that's jobs fucking great and, news, David. Yeah, and they're necessary jobs. You know, the like the legislators <laughs> to whom you refer as morons. I'm I'm not willing to go there with you on that. I think, you know, they're they are. Well, you may have to appear in front of them. I, I, I probably don't. <laughs> you definitely don't. Not, not, not right now. Um, they are sub, they, they're not morons. They've gotten elected, and therefore they are very good at convincing the people that they can represent their interests. Right? They've they've got that skill for sure. And and I and most morons don't have that skill. Um, that said, I think there is. A lot of uh, <laughs> ignorance is maybe too strong a term, but there is a lot of ignorance of technology in a lot of legislatures, and so and and that's you know that's our own fault as voters for electing different types of people, but these people can be educated, and somehow the people who are pushing them in one direction or another always manage to educate them in some way with a political agenda behind them, whether it's people in industry, whether it's public interest groups, whether it's other lobbyists pushing their own agenda, right? And so, yes, it's a very embarrassing time when Orrin Hatch asked that question of Mark Zuckerberg and he's and, and his own ig- ignorance is exposed. But these are the same people who are writing laws about nuclear power and energy and who have no idea what it, what it takes to operate a nuclear power plant or what what an electrical grid looks like. Or, and they're also writing laws about ph- the pharmaceutical industry, and they have no idea about that, right? And so their ignorance is is more or less universal, and yet they are the people charged with passing laws 
on these various topics. And that's that's the American system. And, and dare I say, it's the system in most countries as well. And, and that's kind of what we've set up. And what we are what we all work towards is trying to educate them and make them smarter at the same time, pushing our own agenda, obviously, for for things that we want in in laws that they pass. OK, that's that's another sort of word salad. But it's so as as respects A.I., to come back to that point, I do think it is very smart on the part of the AI industry. And if Sam Altman represents the AI industry, I think it is very smart to say we need to regulate this. I do think that's smart. I think and I don't know, you know, I'm not tracking it closely enough. I don't think he has said that and then immediately produced a set of laws or legislation that he wants. He's just sort of said, please come regulate me, which is, you know, an interesting strategy. I would be super interested to learn, okay, you know, write some laws about that, or at least have some high level policy points that you believe in. And, you know, what do you believe in? Do you think that, you know, that every AI produced thing should be labeled as AI, you know, something like that? I don't know. You know, maybe there's, maybe there's something like a, like a, this, this tomato is produced with GMOs kind of a label. Absolutely. Yeah. Why not? You know, but I get that. I I, I certainly wouldn't have a problem with that. That my concern with the regulation of AI specifically is, 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 is a specific, which is, um, what I think a lot of people outside tech don't realize is there are now more and more closed loop AI systems. Hmm. That is to say they machine learn and they, they are self-referential and self-learning. And then they, and they literally make what you and I would call decisions. It's not really what happens, but that's what, that's the experience of what's going on. And so it self-learns, it self-improves and it makes changes, things that look like decisions to humans without human interaction. It's a closed loop system. And, um, I remember uh, years ago, remember, um, uh, w. Edwards Deming, the godfather of the quality movement. Yeah. He had this incredible uh, uh, saying. He said, the factory of the future will have uh, th- uh, three employees, a-, a machine, a dog, and a man. And the job of the dog is to bite the man if he tries to touch the machine. <laughs> and the job of the man is to feed the dog. <laughs> oh. And so we're kind of getting there. And so this is the one that I um, am most concerned about, which is a self-learning, machine learning, a self-referential AI that goes out of whack and something really bad happens. And um, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, smart people, I think, need to look at this thing. And I think this, to me, is certainly one of the seminal legal issues, uh, because if you say if you take an, another equally powerful for good and bad technology, nuclear power. Well, the governor on the bad part of nuclear power is a human being still has to say, we're going to drop this bomb on somebody. And so that's the that's the override. And the fear with AI is that a machine could make that kind of decision without a human being. 
And so I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts about where we go to deal with that and maybe other things that you are thinking of as, as it relates to AI? Broadly, I think you are right. In other words, every significant decision a machine makes needs a human override. You know, this is, yeah, this is probably the part of the podcast when every guest quotes Mad Magazine. So I'll quote Mad Magazine, right, which was my favorite reading material as a, as a kid. I think like sometime back in the 70s or something in one of in one of the cartoons, it said, yeah, computers are in the future will figure out that every left handed Anabaptist who drives a Buick is a mass murderer. And we need human beings to tell the computers that, no, every left-handed Anabaptist who drives a Buick is not a mass murderer. And so the police should not go out and arrest these people. And that's and but that's kind of where we are. You know, the, the computers are getting good enough to sort of sort through enough data that they can figure out those patterns. But humanity is not a pattern. Right. Humanity is a series of sometimes rational, sometimes irrational, emotional, unemotional actions that can't absolutely be predicted. Right. They can be predicted to a large degree, but they can't absolutely be predicted. And so we are I think we will always have to have some human intermediation and human override to significant decisions that a machine might make that have that has important consequences, you know, that's substantial. And I, there's a bunch of lawyer words in there, substantial, important, you know, other things, material, let's, let's throw that one on the fire. But, but one of my favorites. Yeah, sure. But absolutely, you know, we're going to have to have humans. The machines can help. The machines already do help us make, you know, tons of decisions every day. Right. And so that's like, and that's fantastic because it can eliminate a lot of the burden that humans have to carry and have had to carry historically. And we're, we're still at like the early days of that experiment for sure. But for anything significant, a human's got to be involved, right? And you think we need laws that say that ultimately? For most things, yeah. If you were advising lawmakers looking at AI, that would be something you'd want them to go look at. Is, is, that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. The human override? Yeah. Yeah. If it's a low stakes yeah. thing, who cares? Right. But if it's a higher, if, if, if it's a, you know, if it has material consequences, then absolutely. If it's going to do harm to humans or harm to nature or something like that, humans have got to be in the mix. Right. We've got to go back to some form of Isaac Asimov's laws of robotics. Yes. Which sort of brings me to, and this may sound funny coming from a guy like me, one of my favorite topics, governance. That does sound funny coming from a guy like you. No, I, I, I love governance because the reason I love governance is I think governance sets the context for much, whether it's our society or a specific business. And I think people who are committed to radical transparency, people who are committed to doing the right thing, are strong supporters of strong governance and oversight. I, every legendary person I've ever met doesn't shy from um, governance. Yeah, you know, this is a simple, a simple example. But I, 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 I heard, there were some people recently on a podcast arguing that it, it was an invasion of privacy for your spouse to pick up your phone and start going through it. And 
that sounds insane to me. <laughs> and the reason it sounds insane to me is there's nothing going on on my phone that my wife can't see. Zero. And just like she borrows my car sometimes or I borrow her car, sometimes we share food pretty much every day. And we, it's called being married. You share your life. And so <laughs> if I if I walk into the kitchen and my wife happens to be using my phone for something, I I, I, I don't even really I don't even notice it. She just happens to be on my phone. Anyway, my point is, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to hide. And I think in business, great leaders are radically transparent about a lot, not everything. There's things that you shouldn't be transparent about, but that oversight is critical. And you talked about building trust earlier. One of the ways to build trust is to have governance, right? If you and I are partners we both have access to the, the financials and the bank account and the money. I'm not hiding the money from you or vice versa. And the minute anything weird starts to happen there. So anyway, long story longer, David, I'm a big fan of rigorous governance and of thinking about how do we want to govern this business or this part of this business or or a transaction trying to you know get Activision done or whatever it is. What's the process we're going to put in place to ensure for everybody that this thing has gone well and there's no hanky panky going on. So with all that said, are we saying, or are you saying that what we need are our laws around essentially the governance of AI and that humans need to be deeply engaged in governing AI? I, I don't think for every use, you know, I don't think for every use, I think for uniquely dangerous uses. Yes. You know, I'm very glad, for example, that I can go, to the gas station and get a can of propane to fire up my grill, right? And grill some burgers. That makes me happy. And it's that, you know, there's there's some safety inspection that goes on. I'm sure like that gas station is routinely inspected and their propane tanks probably have to meet certain safety standards, which is great. I don't, the last thing I want is my propane to explode in my face, right? I'm really, really deeply glad that Nuclear power plants are heavily regulated, have massively redundant systems, and are inspected all the time. In fact, I think most of them have sort of on-site government inspectors, right? Because the nuclear power plants are even more dangerous than the propane tanks. I'm similarly glad that I can go to the gas station and fill up my car with gas sometimes, right? That's a great thing. And nobody has to help me do that. There's nobody there making sure that I'm not topping it off or that I haven't overfilled my car or something like that. We trust people to do basic tasks that don't have a ton of risk, that have some risk, but not a ton of risk. And I and like the, the tricky part now is going to be figuring out which tasks are like filling your car up at the gas station, which you can do alone, which tasks are like getting a propane tank, right? Which you kind of, you don't totally understand how thick should that propane tank be and which tasks are like the nuclear power plant, right? But, but yes, some amount of regulation, it feels to me, and some, and to your point, governance and oversight, I think are going to be critical to making sure that this thing, which has different degrees of danger depending on how it's used, is used safely for us. And, you know, I think like people complain that they won't be able to experiment and won't be able to innovate and all that. It's like, no, you know, show me the experiment or show me the innovation that's constrained by, by like thinking about safety. 
I don't, I, I'm not convinced it's there. You know, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm with you. And I find it weird that some leaders in our industry are calling for a two year pause and for all this. Uh, to me, to me, that stuff is, is insane. Uh, we, the United States, we, the democratic world, uh, in my opinion, must win in AI. And if we don't, um, really bad things could happen. And so taking time off of AI to navel gaze on some of this stuff, I don't, I don't think is right. Um, and, and the interesting thing to your point is there's some self-governance in this, right? So you take the filling the gas. Well, if you and I stand there filling the gas and we light a cigarette, we're going <laughs> to blow ourselves and everybody else to smithereens, right? Yes, indeed. So we trust people that, to understand don't fucking do that. Right. There are signs up. And you know what? Don't smoke. (laughs) Don't fucking do that. Right. And and self-preservation is an incredible governor. I remember years (laughs) ago, you know, of course, you and I have done tons of traveling. I remember being on a plane this time and there was some mechanical problem and we waited for, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour for it to get solved. And we were getting ready to go. And there was a gal sitting not far from me and she was literally having a massive panic attack because there was some technical problem on the plane and now we were going and she was afraid that maybe the technical problem wasn't resolved or whatever. She was afraid and she's freaking out and the flight attendant's listening, trying to calm her down. And finally the flight attendant looks her straight in the eye and she says, there's only one person in the world who decides whether this plane takes off and he's on this plane. And so the minute you understand that, I don't have any fear about the plane <laughs> because if he doesn't think, or she, this plane is safe, we're not going anywhere because the she's not going to let us go anywhere. Anyway, so with that said, I think that's a big part of why we don't pick up the newspaper or read our browser and then and, and there's 10,000 people blowing up every day at gas stations, right? Because that right. governor makes people get educated about, about how to use gas safely, in the case of AI, I don't, I'll speak for myself, I don't know where all those lines are. I don't think anybody does. I, I don't know whether I'm smoking in the gas station or not. Right. <laughs> That's, I yeah. guess, the simple way to say it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you, I think, like, you might know broadly. You might know broadly. Um, oh, sure. But... But you're right. But the but but some of it is nuanced and 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 it's it's hard to know. Yeah, really hard to know. That that's it's a damn good point. So yeah, I mean, I I, I think that there needs to be we, we need guardrails. We definitely need guardrails. Now, you know, and and we'll get them in some form or fashion, and they'll be you know, overbroad or underbroad or whatever, they'll be imperfect for a while. I don't think, you know, like I, I referenced Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, which are this very neat and clean and tidy and simple paradigm, right? And that's great for science fiction, but sadly, that's science fiction. I think the real world is like a little bit messier and sloppier. And so there's going to be some mess and slop yeah. around it. And that's, and that's probably okay. I mean, that's that's how society moves, Right. You know, that's we move forward right. in in a little bit of mess and slop for sure. <laughs> There's an uplifting thought. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what what you've shared with me and this sort of brings me to my next question is 
So if a meaningful percentage of our regulators, you know, in the U.S. and Europe and other places, you think are are you know good people doing smart things and so forth, that's great news. Will our lawmakers listen to our regulators when they go to make new laws? Do they do they do that? I mean, do you have any insight into how the lawmakers deal with the actual regulators who do the work? I I think that they will listen to the people that they usually listen to. And those are, you know, a variety of constituents represented typically by intermediaries, right? <laughs> and and you know, one great Did you just say lobbyists, Dr. Shohes? <laughs> I may have just said lobbyists. But one great thing about about American society anyway is we've gotten so advanced that there are very few unlobbied groups in the world. <laughs> you know, there's there's something for everybody and someone for everybody. And so it it's again like it's I'll use the terms messy and sloppy again and apply it to this process. Things are messier and sloppier than anybody would like, but they do kind of work at the end of the day and kind of this is this is a very optimistic statement that I'm making. I I just realized about our society. At the end of the day, things do kind of work, and they usually work out the way you might think they should. Not always, and, and it's sometimes hard because sometimes it's not like progress is slower than you'd like, or people whose views you disagree with get more airtime than you want, or they're in power for longer than you want, or something like that. But as a society, we have tended to march towards the better over time. And that's analogous to, to my career advice, right? Which is, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a portfolio effect. And if you live long enough, good-ish things will happen in the world. Boy, that, <laughs> that sounds kind of... If, if you oh. continue to do good-ish things. <laughs> yeah, it's like sounds... No, I think you're good. right. And I think we take... No, and I think you're generally right. I mean, one that always um, amazes me is airline travel, right? So human beings have not been traveling in the air for very long. Right. And there are, right, roughly, right? And there are um, tens of thousands of planes in the air at any one time. And we have a stunningly low number of crashes and problems and air traffic control issues and and technical issues and you know the safety of the system not just the planes but the system is really stunning to me um and i think many of us take that for granted and and it's only 100 years old and and we were able to get there pretty quickly with an advanced technology that, that could be very scary and yet we don't have planes crashing into each other all the time every day it is a bloody miracle. It is a bloody miracle. I agree. I think you. it is. I'm stunned by it. I, I I allow myself to be amazed by it. I'll tell you, every time I get in a plane, I am amazed, you know, that this massive beast with, you know, 500 of our fellow humans is taking off and is going to deposit me on another continent in 10 hours or something. It is. It's it's like it's stunning. And, and then, you know, and, and as so much time as I spent on a plane, I want to clap every time we land. I, you know, you don't <laughs> because you look like a donkey. I think Southwest you can. But but yeah. I'm a, I, there's there's a big part of me that wants to clap. I always when I get off the plane, 
I thank the crew and 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 the pilot and the co- uh, th- thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> you guys are awesome. We love you. You know, this is an incredible I, thing. I'm, I'm totally with you. You know, it's it's like and and that's one of the exciting things. You know, this is going to sound naive and and like, you know, very Pollyanna-ish, but one of the exciting things about being in the in the world of technology is you kind of like some of that hits you at weird moments and and if you're in it long enough you'll see the world change slightly for the better like i'll i i often remember and i don't know why i remember this but you know the company microstrategy which has basically turned itself into like a bitcoin repository at this point i remember reading a new yorker profile of michael saylor who was the ceo of microstrategy i think he still is and he's now the big bitcoin proponent but this this new yorker profile was something like i don't know 15 or 20 years ago but this this one sort of paragraph stuck with me which is you know he said we're working on on technology and it's it really is a micro it's a way to make micro decisions correctly such that you know i hope that in a few years if you've got our technology and you're using it and you're out at night and there's a drunk guy with a knife walking down the block towards you and you can't see him you'll get an alert that says hey there's a drunk guy walking towards you with a knife cross the street and that drunk guy'll keep going and you won't be harmed you know, and we're all kind of still waiting for that, right? But the promise of things like that, whether it's air travel, very safe air travel, or whether it's like these little decisions and little things that can totally change your life enabled by technology, I think that keeps a lot of people getting up in the morning and staying up late and working in this industry. And that's kind of the idealistic side of the world. And, and maybe open AI, which is just sort of, you know, or AI in general, sort of the latest thing to come along to advance the ball a little bit farther for the world, maybe that will help me avoid the drunken guy with the knife coming at me at midnight. That I would, if, if that's the result, that's fantastic, right? It's fantastic for both of us because then the drunken guy doesn't go to jail and I, and I stay alive. It's like, what could be better than that? I feel good about that, you know, and I want to be in that world for sure. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, David, I could talk to you forever, um, but I also want to be respectful of your time. Are there any other things you'd like to touch on before we wrap? I think, uh, yeah, one, one thing, one thing, and, and I've been ending a lot of conversations with this lately. I think empathy is like an underrated thing in the world. And I think putting yourself in the shoes of the person you are talking with, dealing with, married to maybe, (laughs) you know, is like an underrated way to have a slightly better outcome or maybe a massively better outcome in the world. And so I like, I'm not sure, you know, I'm a, I'm a preacher on this and, and, and a, and a wannabe practitioner for sure. But I do think (laughs) Like a measure of empathy every single day is like a super helpful way to get through your day and to help others get through their day. And that, again, that's like, it sounds a little, you know, cliched and whatnot, and whatnot but I think especially when things are moving quickly and in a business, especially in a tech business, yes. things tend to move quickly. The time for empathy, the time that empathy takes some people would say, well, it's wasted, you know, like I, I've just told you exactly what to do. 
you know, why do I need to show you any empathy? Well, because I'm going right. to do it better and faster and with more energy and come back for more if you do show me a little bit of empathy. And I, tr- and I always try to remember that when I manage people and I try to work for people who have empathy because I, I think empathy is underrated as a way to move the world and make it go around. That's what I got. David Shellhays. <laughs> Christopher Lockhead. <laughs> You're legendary. So are you. Thank you, brother. It's really been great catching up. And um, let's have dinner sometime soon. Absolutely. I would uh, love you're it. welcome to come down here. And um, last time I checked, there were still a few good restaurants in San Francisco. <laughs> I have two. I have two other friends in Santa Cruz. So you're going to be you're going to be my third. And that's that's a good excuse for me to come. Down. Perfect. Why don't you All come right. down and uh, we'll, we'll do it up. We'll do the whole Santa Cruz thing. We'll take you sailing. We'll do uh, the whole thing. Totally. Sounds sounds awesome. We know where all the best breweries are. That's good. All right, Chris. Thanks a ton. All right, brother. Thank you, David. That was the legendary David Shellhays. You can find him on LinkedIn. The link will be in the show notes and at lockhead.com. We'd like to thank you. Thank you for spending your precious time with us. And remember, the legendary people at Doctors Without Borders are saving lives in the most challenging areas of our world. Go to doctorswithoutborders.org and help today. And we'd like to thank our friends at Clary. To learn how to stop revenue leak and drive breakthroughs in the way you govern and collaborate on revenue, head over to clary.com. Want to conquer your category? Partner with AutreNet to reinvent your web presence. AutreNet has been delivering category-defining websites for B2B technology companies since 1996. Head on over to autre.net. That's A-T-R-E dot net. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All oddcasts contain nuts, all rights disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, bartender, bud tender, therapist, yoga instructor, and category designer before acting on any of today's information. Your spouse texted and said it's okay. You can subscribe to Category Pirates. Go to CategoryPirates.com. David Lee Roth said, I don't feel tardy. The Ramones remind us, there's no stopping the Cretans from hopping. And Leonard Cohen said, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J are in charge of technical execution and Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobus do our web development. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind, and we record on Squadcast.fm using Dolby 80 HD technology. Katie Lang was right. Listen to Blue Rodeo. For the love of God, get out of the passing lane. Teach kids mental health. Thanks, Candy Dandy. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Our deepest apologies go to Grant Cardone. Sorry, Grant, we just ran out of time for you. Till next time, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different.